This is Tony. And this is Matt. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. What's going on, Matt? Same old, same old. Same old, same old. Same old, same old. I hear that. Yeah. Um, normal, day-to-day work stuff. Yeah, yeah. Eating too many pretzel M&Ms. Have you tried pretzel M&Ms? I have not. <sighs> Astonishing. Really? I think they're, they could be the best M&M. Well, cat's out of the bag, folks. Today's episode is about pretzel M&Ms. <laughs> pretzel M&Ms. They just kind of go with everything. It's got that perfect balance of the salt and the sweet, I think. So, like, I've been trying to, you know, when I go shopping for essentials for the home, I try to, to get only, like, a bag or so because I know we're going to go through it quickly. Yep. And... And then we have to wait till the next time I go shopping in order to get another bag because, like, it's dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have poor impulse control with junk food. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Like, uh, especially because I'm working from home a lot. Mm-hmm. So, pff, snacks. I don't buy... I try not to buy too many snacks. Sure. Or if we go through snacks quickly, I'm not buying any more snacks right away. I don't think I've ever once eaten popcorn like I wasn't some sort of... Um, like starving monster. I'll usually like, I'll grab a handful that is um, absurd. Uh-huh. You know, kernels are just like tumbling out of my hand between bowl and mouth. And I will just cram all of it into my face. <laughs> like I won't, I won't just hold like a handful and like pop a kernel or two at a time. I will, I will shove as much of it into my mouth as possible. Just be like, Crumbs of it just stuck in my beard, all over my shirt. It's not a good look, Matt. So, you, do do you refrain from buying popcorn in public because you're embarrassed about your popcorn eating? Like when you go to see a movie? Oh no, it's dark. It's more of an issue like when I'm just sitting at home, uh-huh. and you know, if we have company over or or my wife's sitting there you know, watching me eat like <laughs> like some sort of you know. Popcorn monster. Yeah, popcorn monster. Mm-hmm. It's 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 unsavory. It's unsavory. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you eat while you read? Do you ever have snacks while you're reading? Like, say you're sitting down with a good book. Do you have snacks? Um, sometimes. Yeah. Does beer count as a snack? Sure. Yeah. Does it? I don't know. We're we're making it official. Beer is a snack. Beer is a snack. Beer is a snack. What are your reading habits? Ooh. Um, at the moment, they're not great. <laughs> um, yeah, I think since, since Sandra has been pregnant, we've certainly had a lot more screen time. Mm-hmm. I had for a while been making a concerted effort to try to limit just putting the TV on to have it on or just playing video games to play video games. Um, you know, really trying to backload screen time to the weekend or, you know, maybe maybe be a little more strategic about it. Like, oh, there's a movie I want to watch. Let's watch that tonight. As opposed to, let's just put on The Simpsons until we go to bed. Um, so I was trying to read a lot. You know, I was, you know, I think for a couple of years doing between 20, 30 books a year, which I know some people, you know, eclipse that by a mile. But I think that's a decent yeah, track record. That's a, that's a good amount of books. Um, you know, kind of in line with uh, our show, things I was familiar with, but 
hadn't read yet, revisiting some things that I I had not read in a long time. And I'll always, uh, at the end of the year, check out um, best of lists for stuff that I had missed from the previous year and throw those in. Hmm. Been using my library a lot. That's good. Yeah. Do you Wait, so do you find that, do you read a lot of current, like m- books that are coming out throughout the year? Or are you always kind of going back and looking for older books? It's it's really a mix. Yeah. Yeah. That's good though. It's good to have that balance. Sure. I think. Yeah. Uh, I I probably read close to twenty books a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a decent amount of comics too, so it's kind of like balancing between those. But I definitely go through phases of just like, oh wow, I haven't read anything in like two months. Sure. And then I just like, okay, I've got three books going now. Mm-hmm. I have like one on like my iPad. Uh, so when it's dark and it's night, uh, I'm in bed, I can read it in bed. I have a book that would like live in my uh, backpack. So like anytime I'm out and about, I have that with me that I can always pull out. So like I'll have like different books for different oh, sure. scenarios. Um, typically, I gravitate towards things like I read, a, you know, it's a book about a director <laughs> or yeah. a book about directing or about film history or that's just kind of where my head has been. I like a lot of biographies and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, usually of creative type people. Um, but, you know, I do read some fiction here and there sure. um, when I can. And for me, usually it's not about, I I don't know if I ever read anything. Like, I don't know if I'll read any 2020 books. I could read a 2019 book because then I'll be catching up at that point. Sure. But there's so many books that I should have read or or, you know, are, are essential or formative books, but I just never got around to. And speaking of which, that's the subject of today's episode. Uh, and we're talking about Neuromancer, which is um, a book written by William Gibson. Uh, it came out in 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, Tony, what is this book about? Uh, let me back up. I'm asking you because I don't know. <laughs> Wait, really? <laughs> no, sort of. <laughs> we'll get into it in a little bit. Uh, but I had a lot of trouble with this book. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's not necessarily an indictment on, the, or it's not a statement on the quality of this book whatsoever, but I had trouble retaining any of it. I can understand that. Yeah. But so... In a in a nutshell, this, this is, um, you know, considered one of the... Um, benchmark texts in the the genre of cyberpunk it was the beginning of cyberpunk i yeah i think this is what really sort of cemented it i think there had been Um, some dabbling into it blade runner had come out a couple years before which helped to really establish the visual palette of what would become cyberpunk and he said in interviews that he saw like the first half hour or something like that of blade runner before it came out and he was worried because he's like oh this is what i'm doing Yeah, yeah exactly uh, so Neuromancer is about essentially a hacker named Case who is recruited by this mysterious figure to help in what is essentially um, this very elaborate bit of corporate espionage, essentially. Um, the character Case was a hotshot hacker and then crossed the wrong people and had the ability to jack into the Matrix taken away from him. What? So he is presented by this uh, mysterious figure named Armitage. With, I got one last job for you, kid, and I can give you the, I can give you access to the Matrix back. Now, things like the Matrix and cyberspace 
are terms that we take for granted. But what you get in Neuromancer is this very evocative, kind of mind-blowing example of science fiction. It's tricky to really take a step back in 2020 and appreciate the significance of it. Yeah. And I might be getting ahead of myself, but so I had read this before. Mm-hmm. And reading it again, I can understand it is it is a tricky read. So how old were you when you read it the first time? It was probably 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. So I was probably closer in age to, because that struck me that in the book, Case is 24. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was probably about his age when I read it the first time. But I mean, just think of think of the fam- the familiarity most people had with computers and that technology in 1984. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of our perception of the internet was kind of shaped by this book. Yeah. Yeah. More or less. I mean, there are things in here that are easy for us to understand. You know, people uh, slotting Microsoft, which is essentially putting chips into their heads. And mm-hmm. we can visualize, oh, it's like they got a USB drive behind their ear. But like, what does that mean in 1984? Because there's not a lot of context either. Yeah. So let's back up. What was your familiarity or or context for this book before you read it? Zero. Zero. Nothing. Um, you knew I, nothing I, about William Gibson? Nothing or... about William Gibson. Nothing about Neuromancer. Well, actually, yeah. I mean, you you had brought it up, brought up the book in the past, I think. And I don't know what the context was. But I'm sure at some point you had mentioned Neuromancer. So I think it was one of those things where it was just like, yeah, that's a book that's supposed to be good. And I think that's the extent of what I knew about this. Last year, I was going away. And I sent you a message saying like, hey, can I borrow a book? Preferably something between two and 300 pages that I could read while I'm on vacation. Mm -hmm. And you sent me a picture. It was a stack of books. And I saw a Neuromancer in there. And I knew that you were a big fan of it. So I was like, yeah, I'll read Neuromancer. That sounds great. Uh, Initially, I had thought it was maybe more horror related Mm -hmm. until you're like, no, this is this is the genesis of the cyberpunk genre. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so I took the, the book with me on vacation and I got uh, almost halfway through. And um, it was one of those reading experiences where I would, I would, you know, get to a new chapter and I, I kind of sit back and be like, what did I just read? I'm not retaining this. Why am I not connecting to this? We got back from the trip and, you know, when we were determining what our next batch of episodes were, uh, because I had read, started reading this and I knew you were a big fan, we were like, this seems like a no brainer, especially because there's a video game coming out soon. Oh yeah. Cyberpunk 2077 is coming out. And I think that it will be uh, out roughly around the time that this episode comes out. I had, you know, we got back from our trip. I had moved. Um, We had some issues with our new home. Uh, and so at that point, I was like, well, I have to start from scratch. Uh, and so reading this, oftentimes I would find that I, I just wasn't retaining any of it. So I'd go and do read summaries after the chapters in order to try to make sense of what I was reading. And then at a certain point, I also listened to the audiobook, oh, okay, which is narrated by William Gibson. Okay. Um, in order to see if that made it a little more palatable uh, for me to wrap my head around it. And I don't think it has anything to do with the quality of the book. I just think maybe it 
was the wrong book at the wrong at the wrong time. Sure. There are moments where there are passages where it's remarkable how his his the way he can he make the way he can tell stories about technology and how that connects to our culture is really impressive. Mm-hmm. And how he sort of can talk about things like how he refers to the human body as like the characters refer to their bodies as like meat. Uh, and all these science fiction ideas that we take for granted and we're probably maybe bored of are all originated from this. Um, so is it possible to walk away with something and being impressed while also not retaining a lot of it? Are you asking? Yeah. Or are you saying that that's what happened? I think that's what happened. Yeah. I mean, it's very, this is a, so this is a great example of a really tricky phenomenon that happens to everybody when you are directed to what is widely considered the source of a thing. You have very strong feelings about the Matrix movies. Mm-hmm. I know you've seen Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. Um, I know you've seen Akira. I know you've seen so much that has, you know, that sort of emerged from what ev- whatever thing was in the zeitgeist when he wrote this or whatever was influenced by it after the fact. And oftentimes when you follow that trail back to the the kind of singularity that started it all, you know, on the one hand earlier, I was talking about the the sort of mind-bending experience of, of reading all of this in 1984 without, you know, uh, without the full context or understanding or, or comprehension of, of all of this new emerging technology. On the flip side, like you said, there's a lot in here that we are super familiar with mm-hmm. just because we've seen it on screen before. We've read it in different books at this point. I mean, this is um, this book is 36 years old. And there's also a very like kind of like, you know, angsty young man energy to it. And he'll cop to that. I think he said in interviews, it definitely, this is a, this feels like a book written by a young man. Um, it's his first full book. Mm-hmm. He had written some short stories. Sure. And this is his first novel. Novel. Um, I don't, but I don't think it's that thing where, and we had talked about this on our Beatles episode where, oh, there are new versions of this, therefore I don't need this. That's not what this is. I think for whatever reason, each chapter introduces new characters, new sci-fi concepts, um, new places, new locations. uh, And it gets like, it It, gets pretty dense. The middle is particularly tricky. So uh, think of this, this book in three acts. There's the first act set in... Chiba, which is, um, you know, outside of Tokyo, where we were introduced to Case. He's um, he's an alcoholic. He's addicted to all kinds of drugs, basically doing whatever he can to, like, chase a fix and get some money. Um, he's kind of got a, a, a death sentence on his head at this point. He's burned the wrong bridges. And this is when he's recruited by Armitage and Molly. Molly is kind of a... a the Razor Girl. She's yeah. a, a cybernetically enhanced um, hitman. She's the muscle for this guy Armitage, who is recruiting Case for this um, yeah this big uh, hacker heist. And you could see the through line from her to someone like Lisbeth Salander from the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Mm-hmm. At yeah. least like 
this hacker that yeah. kind of modifies their body. Sure. Obviously, girl with the dragon tattoo isn't. She's mo not modifying it with with anything cybernetic or, or any technology. She's modifying it with tattoos and piercings mm -hmm. and and the way she styles her hair. So, but there is that kind of through line. That's oh, the same type absolutely. of character. Yeah. Uh, the middle chunk is where it gets a little. It's a little globe trotty. They're mm -hmm. you know they're getting other. Uh, essential crew members for the heist. Uh, there is Riviera, who is um, really, I mean, his 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 sort of his skill is that he can generate these holographic images, and he's introduced in a way that's very grisly, and it feels like a scene from a horror movie. But Gibson doesn't hold your hand. It's not until later, after you know, the description of this grotesque creature explodes out of his body and attacks people that it's explained oh he can just manipulate these holograms and deceive people the third act of the book is set in um a a low orbit resort colony basically where the whole point is they're trying to break into this corporate network to break through an artificial intelligence there's a lot of there's a lot of big plot details here we're going to kind of glance over for the sake of the yeah. plot thread. I think but if we got into the muck, it would just be really confusing. It would be kind of confusing. Yeah. Um, but the the third act kind of takes place in this this satellite, which is part, um, you know, vacation resort and part the enclave of this uh, eccentric, like, corporate family mm -hmm. um, that has this immense amount of wealth and they have built this satellite and they have... Two artificial intelligences, which by the laws of this world are kept separate because there are certain restrictions and fear of AI being too powerful. Uh, but that middle chunk gets a little disorienting. And even like sure. the third part, too, it's all very firmly set from Case's perspective, not his first person point of view, but um, information is withheld from the reader as it's withheld from case there is i don't think there's any passage of the book that is that does not involve case in one way or another gibson said in an interview that he had watched escape from new york um and and i and apparently there's like a throwaway line towards the beginning that uh, this character says to snake Pliskin. it was something that was alluding to like this bigger world but wasn't elaborated on he loved that. He loved that you could tell a sci-fi story and have all these little pieces that point to a bigger world without having to explain it. And he said that was sort of what he did for this whole book. Sure. Um, which is like right in my wheelhouse usually. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think like there are so many things that this like that this this book talks about or, or ideas or terms that it, it comes up with for its sci-fi concepts that it doesn't, once it kind of puts it in there, it doesn't feel the need to slow down to remind you what it is. No, it, it sort of, it gives you the context that first time and expects you to keep up. Yeah, so you have things like console cowboy or um, ram or ice or icebreaker or the sense net or panther moderns. <laughs> Or Zion, uh, another reference, uh, that another thing that influenced um, the Matrix. Yes, there are um, 
some some Rastafarian characters play a, yes. a large role in the mm-hmm. back half of the book. And um, he does the Rastafarian voices in the audio book. Oh, he does? <laughs> he does, yeah. yeah. I uh, mean, it's certainly that he, he writes that patois. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if... Uh, it's pretty goofy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's so many of these concepts. And so I found this site that's sort of like a, a literary kind of website that takes books and sort of deconstructs them and, and there's a list of terms and it just goes and goes and goes and there's Microsoft's uh, Screaming Fist, the Razor Girl um, but again like he doesn't like when he introduces it it's almost like because the characters all know this stuff mm-hmm. so he doesn't stop to let you know this stuff all the time. Yeah. Well what's interesting is that it's we've we've talked about this we haven't talked about it in a while, but we've talked a lot about that lived-in world. When we did our THX episode, we talked a lot about it in, re- in relation to Star Wars and how Lucas had the intent early on of being like, I want this to be a little bit alienating. Maybe Obi-Wan Kenobi speaks in a different language or, you know, that's why Chewbacca doesn't have any spoken dialogue. You know, he wanted to make it feel like a lived-in alien world. And this feels extremely lived-in. It is very grimy. Like you said, the characters know exactly what he's talking about. Um, And he keeps the reader at a bit of a distance. And I think while I was very enamored the first time, I I agree that I struggled with it this time around. This time? A little bit. What about the first time? The first time I was all in. I just... So did you do any sort of research to connect the dots? I think as stuff came up, I certainly, like you did, you know, looked for clarification where needed. Yeah. But I have always been just in love with the aesthetic of cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. That, you know, grimy, rainy, neon-soaked, 30-year-old idea of what future technology might be. Um, the intersection of human bodies and, um, and cybernetics. Um, the blurring of, of uh, what it means to, to be a... Uh, a conscious individual human as opposed to an artificial intelligence, all that stuff. So for me, reading that book the first time was very, I remember being very magical and I was so hooked. And this is the first of three books in what's called the Sprawl Trilogy. The Sprawl being the sort of, um, you know, what has become the, the eastern seaboard of the United States. And I don't remember anything about those second two books. And I think it was exactly what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, that first introduction to it, I think, was so striking and so singular. Whereas what little I do remember of the other two really kind of dig into more, I think, interests that he has personally outside of this sort of um, big, broad canvas of what this world is. Sure. And I... I I do want to reiterate that I don't think he's a difficult writer because I've read things that are are difficult. Mm-hmm. I've read some Camus. Uh, I've read his fiction and it was accessible. And then I read some of his philosophical stuff and it was you needed to do the work. This is a different thing. Uh, this is him just saying, like, I don't want to have to to hold your hand. And I'm going to introduce a lot of things mm-hmm. and quickly and we're going to go through it quickly. And so I, you have to be on that wavelength, I yeah. think. And I think, you know, earlier I mentioned how he acknowledges that this is the work of a, a young man. You know, I don't think he's speaking just about maybe that attitude or edge 
to it um, because he is still widely regarded as, um, you know, one of one of our, our best science fiction authors and, and certainly has uh, a knack for prescience yeah. in terms of where we're going with our relationship to technology. So I think when he says that was the work of a young man, I think he might be acknowledging some of that. Sure. But I mean, like, because the idea of the Matrix or cyberspace, which came from this book, he came up with those terms. It helped us to sort of uh, have a visual representation of what the internet was. But he also refers to that as a consensual hallucination, Mm -hmm. which I love because that idea of, if we just talk about the internet now, if you really get into the nitty gritty of it, because this is more of like how you perceive hackers in sci-fi movies, at least. Right. Uh, I mean, literally, this yeah. the, what he describes as cyberspace is what you see in the movie Hackers. Yeah, yeah. The, the neon lights rep- in geometric shapes sure. representing different types of information. And, and it's hokey in Hackers because I think they present that as reality in a way, whereas mm-hmm. this presents it as science fiction. But I do like that idea of calling the internet consensual hallucination because in a lot of ways, that's how it feels. Mm-hmm. It's overwhelming. Um, it's too much sometimes. You need to escape from it. It's like it 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 can be overbearing. It could be uh, inventive and creative, and you could be inspired by it. But at the same time, you could it could be damaging and destructive. Right. And, and and I mean, even the way we present ourselves is a a personal hallucination. We are allowing what we want the world to know and see of us to be seen and known. Yeah. We're creating a, an alternate version of ourselves on Facebook and Instagram. And it's insane that he could perceive of that before it was a thing. Right. Yeah. It's funny because in, in the version of the book that I read, so I lent you mine copy and I, I took one over from the library and he talks about, you know, things that he got right and things that he got wrong. The the big whiff is that he completely missed cell phones, mobile technology. And he, he points out like, my favorite moment is uh, a key scene where a row of payphones plays a, plays a prominent plot role. <laughs> That's when the artificial intelligence is trying to get to case. Mm-hmm. And it's a great cinematic scene where he picks up one phone and it's the AI and he hangs up. And as he quickly walks away, all the phones in sequence start ringing after him. I have a something I want uh, to read here from. This was an article that uh, Joshua Rothman wrote for The New Yorker last year entitled How William Gibson Keeps His Science Real. The context for this passage is sort of talking about how a lot of sci-fi writers, um, when they're predicting, are, are kind of thinking about what's coming. This method is quite common in science fiction. It's not the one employed by William Gibson, the writer who for four decades has imagined the near future more convincingly than anyone else. Gibson doesn't have a name for his method. He knows only that it isn't about prediction. It proceeds instead from a deep engagement with the present. When Gibson was starting to write in the late 70s, he watched kids playing games in video arcades and noticed how they ducked and twisted as though they were on the other side of the screen. The Sony Walkman had just been introduced, so he bought one. He lived in Vancouver, and when he explored the city at night listening to Joy Division, he felt as though the music were being transmitted directly into his brain, where it could merge with his perceptions of skyscrapers and slums. His wife, Deborah, was a graduate student in linguistics who taught ESL. He listened to her young Japanese students talk about Vancouver as though it were a backwater. Tokyo must really be something, he thought. He remembered a weeping ambulance driver in a bar saying she flatlined. On a legal pad, 
Gibson tried inventing words to describe the space behind the screen. He crossed out infospace and data space before coming up with cyberspace. He didn't know what it might be, but it sounded cool, like something a person might explore even though it was dangerous. So, and we've talked about this before in terms of sci-fi, that the best sci-fi is less interested in guessing about where we're going than it is about using the conventions of the genre to explore where we are. The late 70s and early 80s was a really interesting time. I mean, especially with the role that computers and interconnected technology and Japan plays in this. I mean, the the video game crash happened in 1983, a year before this came out. So that was after Atari and all the imitators over flooded the market. But arcades were everywhere. Home computers were starting to become, if not more common, at least uh, reasonably priced enough to start trickling into homes. Uh, Japan was an enormous economic power in terms of things it was exporting, in terms of its domestic demands, in particular when you look at electronics. So, so it was just taking you know, the temperature of, of the world in that moment, you know, I mean, who, who, I can't imagine there were a lot of people thinking, you know, besides sci-fi writers and maybe the, the computer nerds who were using this technology every day, but how this was going to change the world. And it's, it's nothing like Neuromancer, but the interconnectedness and the idea that crime and commerce would move off the streets and into just this network of nothing. It's pretty wild. It, it also deals a lot with wealth inequality. Yeah. Because Case himself is an addict. Mm -hmm. He's a drug addict and he wants uh, another fix, but is unable to go into the matrix at the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. uh, so he makes a deal in order to get access to that, but also to be able to have drugs. Yep. Um, but it, it just shows, too, that sometimes that people that are on the edge of poverty are beholden to these systems that are bigger than them. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a lot of what this book is about, is these people on the margins and how they have to, to work for things that are bigger than them and out of control. Sure. Yeah, I, you know, there is um, you know, there, you that class struggle and this idea that young people are thinking how technology works for them differently than intended. The gang that you mentioned earlier, the, the Panther Moderns are, you know, using this sort of hallucinatory sort of camouflage technology. Um, the fact that Case at 24 is like an elite criminal just based solely on a, you know, a knack for for the, the stuff that he's using to get onto the Matrix. And the book deals a lot with artificial intelligence as well. And that's where the the title comes from is from one of the artificial intelligence constructs in the book, mm -hmm. uh, which is going up against another one. <laughs> and I think that's where things get a little sort of comp complicated. So there's Wintermute, which mm -hmm. is another AI, and there's Neuromancer. And Wintermute is sort of, uh, well... The logical one. Yeah, but it's trying to take over. Correct? Is, do I have that right? Oh, is it Neuromancer that's trying to consume Wintermute? There are limits put on artificial intelligence. 
mm-hmm. so that they are these are two halves of a whole that are physically separate in that they are housed on different servers on different parts of the world. But one of them is very logically minded and one of them has this sort of emotional drive. And the fear is that, you know, never the two shall meet because if they do, they create something new. And a lot of the finale of the book becomes, you know, what, you know, what really is, you know, sentience and, and, you know, the, the sort of rules in place to prevent or to put these inhibitors on what is clearly a natural evolutionary step forward. This technology that they're playing with is pointing towards some new thing. And that scares a lot of people who are in power, which is why these AIs are kept separate because if they combine, they become this sort of all, not all powerful, but this, uh, this, this new free thinking thing that nobody quite knows how to deal with. And that's how it ends. They join in the end mm-hmm. and uh, it shows up yeah. uh, and talks to Case. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, oh yeah, I found some, yeah. some friends out I found in Alpha Centauri. And Case is just like, what are you talking about? Like, you're the only one. And he's like, no, there are others. And it's like this ominous ending of like, this is now this thing that is going to spiral out of control. Mm-hmm. Now, do, do they run with that in the sequels? Well, you don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. It's been a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's fair. Um, yeah, I mean, and this doesn't even get into, like, how many characters there are. We haven't mentioned Riviera or Three Jane, who is the a clone, correct? A th- yes. The third version of, that's why she's Three Jane. She's yeah. the third version of her. Of the Tessier Ashpoles. They are a family that own the, the, the AIs. Yes, and own that orbital yeah, where they, resort. It's almost like a, yeah, like you said earlier, it's like a one last heist kind of thing mm-hmm. uh, for Chase or Case. Um, there's clone bodyguards and and then and Case has like these sort of hallucinations, but it's also like implied that it's part of what uh, uh, the holographic stuff created by... Winter mute, where he sees his his ex girlfriend mm-hmm. who had passed away. Um, Neuromancer created that. Oh, jeez. See, yeah. that's that, I guess that's the thing. Um, a lot of this is really uh, by the end, it gets tricky. About for me, it was it it, it, mm. it, it was complicated. Yeah. yeah. No, Winter mute was guiding them to get it to join with Neuromancer. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, there's also. Um, I mean, we didn't. I mean, Armitage is a really tricky character to unpack because he is this he played a pivotal role in a um, an important part of the fictionalized Cold War where he and a number of other uh, soldiers were basically sent in on gliders into Russian space to try to hack into the Soviet mainframe or whatever. This was the first like weaponized hack. Um, as a result um the, the Soviets knew this was happening. They they counterattacked. He managed to survive, but was horribly maimed and psychically, like psychologically scarred. And then the government kind of rebuilt his body, uh, effectively 
used him as a, a puppet in this kind of like propaganda PR spin on the whole incident. And then Wintermute t- takes advantage of his, you know, fragile manufactured consciousness to to pull this heist together. It gets it gets really hairy. <laughs> yeah, cuz uh, there's also they um they recruit this guy named Riviera who can make holographic hallucinations. Yes, he's he the lo- guy was, he was he, the guy I was talking about earlier. And he loses his mind. Yes. And kind of turns against them. Mm-hmm. But Armitage also turns against them and you find out Armitage's you find out his real name. <laughs> yeah. So each character has like a, a different name and a connection to something else. Uh, it's it's really complicated. It is. And again, because you're never getting any of it from anyone but Case's point of view. I mean, Case is fairly confused for a yeah. lot of the, the, the book. There's also Dixie Flatline, which is the preserved consciousness of Case's hacker mentor, <laughs> which it exists as ROM that they have to break and out of a facility. What's ROM? Like, like memory. Okay. Well, that was clear. Hopefully that was... Or, like, or RAM, you know. Like, yeah, you know, like, yeah, yeah. You know. I just wanted to make sure we were clarifying that for anyone yes. listening. Yes. Because we're throwing all these terms at. And yeah. I think that's what... And again, like I don't... This is not a judgment of quality. <laughs> this it was just, uh, again, like it made it... It's, it's entryway into it was... There was a barrier. Sure, absolutely. Um, and I, I gravitate towards those things. We've talked about this repeatedly, how I'm always looking for things that are maybe a little more difficult. I think sometimes that, and and that's what I've been thinking about a lot in relation to this, is the difficult things that I gravitate towards are more uh, abstract mm-hmm. than conceptual. Sure. And this is maybe a little more conceptual, although it dabbles into abstract uh, imagery. But we haven't really talked about the prose at all, and I mean, it is like, it's it's beautifully written. Sure. Uh, and there are all these evocative passages about what this cyberspace world is like, what the hallucinations are like. Again, how they augment their bodies, mm-hmm. um, which is a big facet of um, cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the, the, the first things you think of is people that have, augmented and changed their bodies. Yeah, they got they've got ports in their neck and they got wires running around their body. Yeah. Even before we get to cyberspace. I mean, the first sentence in the book is the sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It's very evocative. And then kind of the opposite of what I was saying earlier is when I was saying how can can you imagine people in 1984 not having the full context? What does a dead channel look like now? Yeah that analog idea of static because that's what I kind of have in my head is this sort of silvery grayish mess you know this un this sky just stained by unnatural light that yeah. never goes out I'll read this passage where he talks about the sprawl just to talk about how complex this kind of gets without hand holding anything mm-hmm. but he says the sprawl was a long, strange way home over the Pacific now, and he was no console man, no cyberspace cowboy, just another hustler trying to make it through. But the dreams came on in the Japanese night like live wire voodoo, and he'd cry for it, cry in his sleep, and wake alone in the dark, curled in his capsule in some coffin hotel. His hands clawed into the bed slab, temper foam bunched between his fingers trying to reach the console that wasn't there. So he's talking about the sprawl and 
console man and cyberspace cowboy and all these things. And again, there's no immediate explanation for any of that. No. And there's a lot of borrowed Japanese lingo too. I mean, they talk a lot about um, zaibatsus and you know this this idea of like the Japanese company man. That's kind of how he describes like the squares of the world in yeah. Japan, where you know not the not the people in the gutter who are scraping by to get money for drugs or or hustling for you know to pull off some some petty crime, um, but there's sort of a little glimpses into this whole you know working culture that those were things I had to look up a lot of the time. Yeah, or or like a coffin is in reference to like a hotel room. Yes. Which is a great way of thinking of that. If you think about how hotel rooms sometimes for people that are constantly traveling or don't have a home of their own, it is a sort of place that's like almost like a form of death. Yeah. I mean, he, he, his apartment is basically a, like a 10 meter long pod that he can sit up in. It's got a coffee machine, it's got his computer and it's got a place for him to sleep, but it's not, it's got nothing but the bare essentials to, to live day to day. And he had terms for things like cybersecurity and firewalls as well. Like that's where ICE came in in this book, mm-hmm. which is intrusion countermeasures electronics. Just more sort of jargon. Get, but also jargon that came up with terms for things that didn't exist yet. <laughs> or didn't exist in a way that was, you know, remotely accessible to people who worked outside of the computer industry. Yeah. So so rereading it for the podcast, it was a little difficult this time through, but did you still enjoy it? I did. Yeah. I really did enjoy it. But again, I, I think, you know, it's hard for me to sort of look at this critically and say, you know, how much of it is, was the, 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 the text itself versus just my, my sort of insatiable hunger for for this type of for, story yeah for this type of story yeah. for the um you know a, a lot of the window dressing is the the aesthetic of this type of universe mm-hmm. is um it's a lot of fun and i find myself always maybe giving a little more credit than is rightfully due and i'm not dismissing this by any means but i know like i've i know i've probably enjoyed some lesser cyberpunk just because it looks cool <laughs> sure. Um, I think that's the thing. The whole time through, I was just like, I never once said like, oh man, this book, fuck you. It was always like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> what am I doing wrong? Why am I not clicking? Why am I not connecting to this? While still sort of admiring it from a distance. Mm-hmm. I just wanted it to let me in and I never I, I never got there with it. Well, Case isn't a particularly likable character. Yeah. And I mean it how ha- the fact that he really hates himself <laughs> sure. kind of comes through. Oh, it certainly does. Uh he's uh dependent on on drugs. Uh yeah, he's he's upset when they replace several of his internal organs so that he cannot process and get high from illicit substances. Yeah, and they need him to be kind of, you know, on his game because mm-hmm. they're these planning these elaborate heists. Yeah, through cyberspace. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I was bummed because I know you really liked it, and you've talked about this in, in the, in the past, and, and how, how impactful this book was for you. Mm-hmm. So I was hoping that it was like I was so excited to read this. 
And again, I don't think it wasn't a quality issue at all. It was just, again, like I'm not retaining. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had that problem before when reading something? Oh, yeah, sure. I think in the past it would be like, I'm, I just don't remember this. So I guess I'm not going to read this. Um, and that probably would have happened if we weren't talking about it for the show. Mm-hmm. But I always feel bad in those situations because it's not like, and I've gotten better at this over the years where if something, it like I, I know that it's not working for me. Like if it's not a, oh, this movie isn't very good or this, it, it's more with television where the series isn't good anymore. So I, I've been gotten much better at jettisoning it and not seeing it through to its completion. In the past, I'd be like, oh man, I got to watch Hero Season 3 because I've already watched the first two, even though the first season was terrible. Right. But so I've, I've gotten better as I've gotten older to like, oh, this series, this comic series isn't really working. I don't need to continue reading it to see it through to the end. Um, but I didn't feel that in this case of like, oh, well, this isn't working. That, so I don't need to finish it. It was like, why can I not, like, what is wrong with me again? Like, sure. I always put it on me on this one. Well, I mean, uh, what I think you're saying is there is, there's nothing for you to emotionally connect with. Yeah, maybe. And I don't know that this book was necessarily interested in emotional connections. And, I, you know, maybe by design, certainly there is a bit of that. I mean, the fact that as you mentioned, Case regularly and condescendingly refers to his body as meat. Yeah. He is not interested in the connection to other people. All he needs, all he thinks he needs is that connection to the matrix, Mm -hmm. to cyberspace, to the technology. And I think, you know, the book does work towards him learning a lesson about the importance of connections. And a lot of that comes through of all places when this piece of technology becomes a new consciousness. And he kind of does, you know, I I don't want to say he has like a, there's no sort of like teaching moment, but there is a bit of that understanding of, of the importance of things. He's probably been keeping at arm's length. Yeah. You know, the relationships that he's lost, the people in his life who he has lost, he hadn't ever really stopped to think about what that meant to him because it was all about the stuff. Yeah. You know, which not to say that it's a, you know, a think piece on, um, you know, uh, our our relationship to possessions versus people. But, um, you know, as you were saying with the idea of the Internet being the shared hallucination for for him, that was realer than real life. And we've talked about this in some lesser pieces of science fiction. We I think. uh I was on, we were on Let's Chat recently and Ready Player One came up mm-hmm. and it toes, it puts its toe into that space where, you know, this is a world inhabited by people who are happier when they're plugged in, but it doesn't ever really do anything to really There's no follow reckon through. with what that actually means. Yeah. And I think Neuromancer kind of gets there. Yeah. I mean, conceptually... There are these moments that I thought was, you know, it was quite lovely. And it's idea of cyberspace before that was a thing and and the body being meat uh, and our relationship to technology 
uh, and 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 sort of addiction as as a metaphor for our ego mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Um, I was always like, yeah, this is right on my wavelength. This is great. And then the plot stuff would be there, and I just again, it wasn't a matter of like I don't like this. It was like I'm not retaining this mm-hmm. because there's so much sure. and it's so quick. Um, but you know. I tried. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and, and for me, I'm very interested in eventually getting to Count Zero and Mona Lisa Overdrive, which are the the two follow-ups to Neuromancer. Okay. So you're going to um, reread those? Yeah. Uh, but before that, I have Pattern Recognition, which is- That's his new one? No. He wrote that, I think that came out after 9-11. And I th- oh, I heard that's his best one. That's what people are saying now mm-hmm. anyway. I yeah. mean, this one may be the most influential, but that one supposedly is, um, you know. Yeah, and so I'm very interested to sort of fast forward a couple mm-hmm. of decades to see, as a more mature writer, where he's at and how he's exploring similar mm-hmm. ideas. Because even with his newest book, which... Uh, it just came out. It just came out, but um, he's still playing with a lot of this stuff, you know, exploring the relationship between um, humanity and technology and where we're going. Um, so, you know, if someone is a big fan of Neuromancer or is interested in cyberpunk in general, what would you recommend them uh, as a next step? So I have two movie recommendations. Great. The first one... The Matrix. Uh, uh, the first one is Strange Days. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is directed by Catherine Bigelow. It was released in 1995. It was kind of a big flop, um, but it stars uh, Ray Fiennes, Angela Bassett, Juliet Lewis, and it's um, yeah, it, you know, it deals. There's a lot of class struggle and um, racial tension at play. Uh, the big sort of connection to Neuromancer here is that uh, the main character, played by Ray Fiennes, is an ex-cop who deals in illegal memories. So there is a a gadget that people can put on their heads, and they can play first-person recordings of other people's memories. And a lot of the things he's dealing with are criminal activities. So it's sort of like for thrill seekers. And of course, he comes into possession of uh, um, the murder of a a prominent uh, hip hop artist by the police. So that's sort of the big central um, conflict in the movie. But in Neuromancer, there is a technology called SimStim. So not only is Case able to... um, Jack into the Matrix, but he's also at one point able to uh, essentially jack into the perceptions in real time of what Molly is doing. He can see, smell, hear everything that's happening around her. So that's why I pick Strange Days. The other one is an anime called Perfect Blue. Cool. Have you, have you seen Perfect I've Blue? I've never seen Perfect Blue. Perfect Blue is really cool. It's more cyberpunk adjacent. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was released in 1998 and directed by Satoshi Khan. And I, I chose this because uh, in a similar way to how Gibson was really prescient about, you know, where interconnected uh, communication technology was going, Perfect Blue really zeroes in on where the Internet was taking the toxic and sometimes dangerous relationship between uh, fans and celebrities. And there is a bit of this sort of you know, the cyberpunk trope of uh, who am I really? You know, am I really who I think I am? But a big part of it is this this mystery involving this cyber stalker uh, 
um, who is obsessed with this pop star who's starting to break away from the success she had as a as a young performer and kind of coming into her own. And it gets it's really dark and twisted. And and I think in an age where there's a lot of um, toxic fandom, and especially with the way people tend to shame celebrities off of social media. Uh, we live in a world where swatting is a thing, where people playing, you know, uh, a first-person shooter will will call in a fake bomb threat, uh, and and have police kick in the door of the person they're playing against. Like real-world danger through this seemingly anonymous and uh, you know, presumably innocent activity. It's um, perfect blue. Some really scary stuff. Yeah, I've I've had that kind of on the back burner for a while. Um, I've always meant to watch it. So yeah, but maybe I should give that a, a, a watch. Cool. And what about you? Any, um, yeah, so I'm going to recommend every version of battle angel Alita, um, from the manga, uh, which came out, uh, in 1990, um, which, uh, is created and written and illustrated by Yokito Kishiro. Uh, and it has this beautiful line work. Uh, it's all kind of pen and ink um, with a lot of gray tones. Uh, but it, again, it, it deals with a lot of cyberpunk stuff where Alita may be a cyborg, but a lot of the people um, in the world, and uh, you know, there's um, a city that floats above pretty much all of the poor people. That's Salem, and, and that's where everyone kind of wants to go. So similar, uh, again, have and have nots, but a lot of the people augment themselves with cybernetic parts. Uh, and then you have these people called the hunter warriors and they're kind of, you know, assassins for hire, essentially looking for killers and murderers. Uh, so every version is pretty cool. I, the manga is great. Um, it's a pretty big series where, you know, Alita comes into her own, becomes a, a hunter warrior and then eventually goes up to Zion. I mean, Salem and, Zion Salem. Uh, and then the, the anime, which came out in the 90s, uh, which was a pretty um, seminal anime for me when I was a kid. Uh, it kind of tuned me into a lot of other anime, uh, which adapts the original manga, uh, but has some great animation. And then the most recent version um, by Robert Rodriguez uh, and written by James Cameron. And I think that does a great job of world building and also leans into this notion that Alita chooses her form of her own body, uh, which I thought was a really interesting concept that they introduced into this new version. And it seems to be embraced by the transgender community uh, and uh, as a, a way of speaking for them in the sense of like, we can choose our own autumny. Um, so it's a, it's a, a bit of a, a mixed bag in some ways, but I think the good outweighs the bad. Uh, and visually, it, it does a great job of kind of um, showing a new version of, of cyberpunk. Cool. Yeah. What are we talking about next time? Uh, next time, we're going to be talking about Haywire, which is a film directed by Steven Soderbergh and starring uh, Gina Carano. Yeah. Uh, action sort of espionage movie. Yeah, spy thriller mm -hmm. with some some really cool action set pieces. And have you ever seen this before? I have not. Great. Uh, this is a favorite of mine. Oh, cool. So I'm excited to kind of introduce that to you and, and chat. Great. All right. See you then. See ya. 
Thank you for listening to What Did We Miss? If you want to catch up on previous episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify, Stitcher Premium, and Google Play. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And thanks, as always, to What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, where we record our episodes. If you want to learn more about them, you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at What Cheer Club and visit their website at whatcheerclub.org.